church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and that's where I've, the first church I served after my ordination. So it's a little bit of a memory trip. I went there, saw some old friends and so on, and, and it reminded me that in those days back when I was first ordained, ecumenical conversations was uh, the conversation between Baptists and Episcopalians, Episcopalians and uh, Presbyterians, Presbyterians with Methodists, and so on and so forth, and Roman Catholics. Now, we've moved a long way from those days of that kind of ecumenical talk. As a matter of fact, we're all pretty sure that the Pope is really a, an Episcopalian, uh, a closeted Episcopalian, I may add. He seems to be saying all the things that the Anglicans like to say. So we've moved from that, and then it made me think about the fact that since 9-11, uh, all of that has changed. Our ecumenical conversations now are between Jews, Muslims, uh, all the other faiths, and Christians, and we gather for that. What's happened with all those ecumenical conversations is that we, there are really two ways of doing those services. And this past uh, winter, I had the experience of going to two very different ecumenical services. One of the ecumenical services was that uh, you tried to get to the lowest common denominator, uh, and in it, all the prayers sound very much alike. Uh, the Christians pair God down from three to one. The Jews don't use any Hebrew. And the Muslims uh, find a way to turn their backs on Mecca. And they don't say anything in Arabic. Everybody agrees not to say anything that in any way is going to offend anybody else. I have to tell you, this is not my favorite way of having an ecumenical service because it really narrows it down to just the lowest common denominator. Some years ago, I had the opportunity to be the, the preacher for the baccalaureate service at the University of North Carolina. I didn't know how it was planned, but I walked into this, and really what it was was everybody got up uh, to read something from all of the different faiths, but they were really covering it up. We weren't really using the actual uh, scriptures or whatever we used in the prayers. Everything was narrowed down to the very, the most common thing. And I want to tell you, the service didn't mean anything to anybody, at least from my perspective. And then there's a second method, which I much prefer. The second method is that we bring our particularity to the table, and we speak from our own traditions and are unafraid to do so. Christians pray to Jesus, the Jews bust out the Hebrew, and the Muslims reference Muhammad with abandon. And rather than being too afraid to risk being offensive, we agree not to be easily offended. And what it requires is some sense of good relationship, and it requires some sense of having some trust in each other. It's an important thing, I think, for all of us to do. I think it's an important part of who we are now, as you know. The greatest human migration since 1945 is taking place right now. And so we are going to encounter people of all the faiths, whether you like it or not, you're going to encounter people of all the faiths all over the place. And so when we gather for those uh, second type of worship, you know, my question is always, what can I learn? What can I learn from a Muslim about Islam? When I gather with my Jewish friends, I always say, what can I learn about the Hebrew faith from a Jewish believer and follower? When I gather with everybody else, I want to learn what I can learn about what drives them. After all, there are really three questions in all of our lives. All of us ask ourselves these questions. Who am I? Where am I going? And what are, all, what are all these other people doing here? And the only way to deal with all three of those questions is to deal with it honestly. And you identify who you are and you see how other people identify themselves, and you try to find the common ground, and mostly you learn how to respect each other and to learn from each other.
All of this brings me to our hero for the day, Stephen. That's a reading from the book of Acts, the very end of Stephen's life. We know him to be the first martyr of the church. He gets stoned to death. And this particular reading only gives us chapter, uh, verse 55 through about verse 59. I think I'm correct with that. And they just tell you that everybody's enraged at him, and so they stone him to death. What the reading doesn't tell you, because Episcopalians can't handle too many verses on any given Sunday, is this, that there's a lot of stuff that happens right before this. And it's when Stephen confronts everybody. He first starts to be a deacon, as you well know. He's a deacon, and in those days, the deacons were the people who actually served the meals. And his job was to be the waiter. So he was awaiting the waiter, and somehow he gets full of the Holy Spirit, and when he gets full of the Holy Spirit, he starts speaking out, and when he speaks out to all of the people in the synagogue, he offends everybody in the synagogue. Listen to what the previous verses say that you're not allowed to hear today in the Episcopal Church, but you're going to hear it anyway. And it goes like this. This is Stephen speaking, and he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones that received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. And then the Bible goes on to tell us after he goes into that diatribe, when they heard these things, this is the people in the synagogues, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. I have to tell you this, with all due respect to the first martyr, I don't think that I would invite Stephen to an interfaith service these days. Because <laughs> I think he would offend everybody. I think he would offend everybody by accusing them of something in their lives. For all of us, when we gather interfaith services, and if you haven't done it, I would urge you to do it, because that's the only way that we're going to have an ability to grow in our faith and to have an ability to understand everybody that is gathering around us. The Hebrew people believe in one true God, and they know that God to be Yahweh who has chosen them. The Baha'i the faith puts all religions together, and it talks about the imperfect expressions of faith. Buddhism looks to a 12-fold path of enlightenment, that negates the world and leads to a higher level of existence. Hindus worship many gods, including Vishnu, Shiva, and Brahma. And Islam recognizes Abraham and Jesus as prophets, but places priority upon the teachings of Muhammad. And as you and I both know, all Native American spirituality understands a great spirit that is behind all things, uniting humanity with star and moon, earth and sky. And that's the world in which we live. And for us to grow in our faith, and for us to live together, I think the best thing to do is to be honest with us about what drives us and what moves us. Stephen Carter, in his book on civility, said that civility is not about good manners. Civility is the, is the uh, sacrifice we make to be able to live with each other. And I think that's an extraordinar extraordinarily true comment that we all have to accept for ourselves. So we have Stephen, whom we would never invite to an interreligious service. How about Jesus? 
The reading that we have today, I think, is a very tough reading from John's Gospel, the 14th chapter. It's a passage that is read most often at funeral services here at St. John's Church. And most of our funeral services are really ecumenical services. People come here who have been members of this church, but who have friends who are Jewish friends, who are friends who don't have any faith, who are friends who are Muslim. They have friends from all kinds of folks, just like we all do. And then we get to that particular passage, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I have to tell you that at most funeral service, I wish I could just cut it out. I wish that I could just leave it out because they're really ecumenical services, but we don't because we proclaim that. And perhaps the best thing to do is to ask ourselves, what do we mean by that? Does Jesus actually mean to say, this, I'm the only way, this is the only way, our Christian way is the only way? When I was in the Diocese of, New Jer- in the Diocese of Newark, our bishop there was Jack Spong. Jack Spong was a pretty wild guy, I have to say. And he was way out there, but he was asking all the right questions. And one of the things in one of the presentations that he did for all of the clergy one time, uh, one of the uh, more conservative members of the clergy asked him, stood up and said, Bishop Swong, are you a Christian? And Bishop Swong replied by saying, you know, I think that I'm a Christian. And I'll tell you why I think I'm a Christian, because that's where I see the light shining the brightest. And I am drawn to that light because the light is shining the brightest there for me. And my task is to let that light shine as brightly as possible in my life so that other people may be drawn to that light. And he said, but in no way can I tell anybody that that's the only light. That's the way that I see the light shining the brightest. Jesus only had one conversation with the people of other faiths. And it was a Syrophoenician woman that we find in the 15th chapter of Matthew's Gospel and in the 7th chapter of Mark's Gospel. And if you remember that, that conversation with the Syrophoenician woman, when the beginning of the conversation starts, Jesus says to the Syrophoenician woman, he calls her a dog. And the woman comes back and challenges Jesus. And by the end of the conversation, Jesus has changed. He is converted and he sees in her what we all see in everybody else in which we all proclaim, which is that everyone, every one of us, is a unit of God's grace. And that we're all unprecedented, irrepeatable, and irreplaceable. And Jesus, I think, has a conversion experience confronting the woman of other faith, the Syrophoenician woman that we find in those two chapters. I like to think that perhaps when Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's saying... Follow me in this way. Admit your biases. Admit your mistakes. Grow from them. And invite other people to be part of the conversation. You and I both know that this world is getting smaller and smaller and is full of people that are different from us every way. There is less space and less space to believe only what you want to believe. So perhaps today we can read this passage and I offer it for your consideration. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, follow me in that way. Be in conversation. Learn. Change. Be cornered. But ultimately, be able to have a transformation, a conversion 
from the narrow points of our faith into one which is broader that includes all humans created by God, in our perspective redeemed by the same Christ, and sanctified by the very same Holy Spirit. Amen.